0: Lee Strobel was the former award-winning legal editor of the Chicago Tribune, and uh, he was an atheist until Jesus got a hold of him and saved him. Strobel is an apologist and prolific writer, and in, in a post that was titled, Are There Many Paths to God?, he quotes John fourteen six, one of the verses from today, and comments, quote, Some of you are seekers, and something inside of you chafes at the idea that Jesus is the only way to God. For you are living in a world where there seems to be endless options in virtually every area of life, end quote. And Strobel's right. Um, Our culture caters to our preferences, uh, not the truth. And this is what Strobel called a stumbling block to faith. Strobel added a paragraph that I think captures the difference between Christianity and every world religion that contradicts it. This is what Strobel said. Quote, the uniqueness of Christianity is rooted in the uniqueness of Jesus himself. Other religious leaders say, Follow me and I'll show you how to find the truth. But Jesus says, I am the truth. Other leaders say, Follow me and I'll show you the way to salvation. But Jesus says, I am the way to eternal life. Other religious leaders say, Follow me and I'll show you how you can become enlightened. But Jesus said, I am the light of the world. See the difference? End quote. Far too often, Christians are considered bigoted, intolerant, and conceited, and sometimes that's fitting. We can be. But at the heart of Christianity is Jesus Christ, who made exclusive and dogmatic statements upon which we believe, uh, build our entire belief system. The proposition that Jesus Christ is the only one who can take us to God did not originate with us. It originated with God. And because Jesus demonstrated he was indeed God, we must believe what he says. Believe in God and Jesus. Believe in God and Jesus. The disciples were troubled. Why? Why were they troubled? Jesus said that not every one of them was clean. That one of them would betray him. And Matthew told us that after hearing that, the disciples were very sorrowful. John even said that Jesus was troubled in his spirit, which likely added a palpable tension at this supper. But I think the primary reason that the disciples, the 11 disciples, were troubled is because Jesus told them this. Little children... Yet a little while I am with you, you will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. After three years of following him everywhere and growing so close to him, that was hard to hear, that he was leaving. Now, we like to, to quote this verse in times of our trouble. And the principle of this of these verses They apply to us, but we need to understand that the disciples were going through something unique. They didn't have the truth revealed to them like we do. And neither did they have the indwelling Holy Spirit at this point. Their hearts were troubled pre-Pentecost and even pre-cross and resurrection. As believers, we have the Holy Spirit in us and our trouble is post-Pentecost, resurrection, And cross. We know how the story ends. So Jesus very kindly encourages them. Let not your hearts be troubled. The disciples were on the cusp. Of. Traumatic. And unrepeatable events. Lament would absolutely be upon them. So Jesus offered this tender counseling. And comfort to prepare them and to quiet their hearts. And we'll see that counseling and that comfort unfold for us over the next few chapters through chapter 17. Pay close attention to what Jesus believed would console their troubled hearts. It wasn't food. It wasn't alcohol. It wasn't drugs or psychology or exercise or entertainment. What Jesus said would alleviate their troubled hearts was faith and the promise of heaven verse one let not your hearts be troubled believe in god believe also in me he counseled them to do the only thing that could alleviate their troubled hearts believe in god believe also in me jesus was reminiscent of psalm 42 5 and 6 why are you cast down O my soul Why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God. For I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. My soul is cast down within me. Therefore, I remember you from the land of Jordan and of Hermon from Mount Mizar. Hoping in God and remembering God alleviates a cast down soul. As we believe in God and Jesus, God, as the object of our faith, provides us the solace that we need. Very quickly, let's review what belief is, true belief is. I've given you this acronym before, so hopefully this rings a bell, you can jot it down if you haven't heard this. K-A-T-E, Kate, K-A-T-E. These four characteristics define true saving faith, all four or needed. If you miss any of them, you don't really believe. K, no. No. Belief begins with knowledge about God, knowing what the Bible claims about God, but it's more than that. A, assent. You must agree that what God reveals about himself in the Bible is true, but that's not enough either. Demons are great theologians. Demons believe the Bible. So belief is even more than that, T, trust. Belief is then putting your complete confidence, your trust, your faith, your hope in God for life and salvation and E, enjoy. True belief is enjoying God as the delight of your heart. The last two are where the demons and many people refuse to go. They won't go. They'll get, they'll get the first two, but not the last two. So the remedy for the disciples' troubled heart and the remedy for your troubled heart is the same. To know about, to assent to, to trust in, and to enjoy God and Jesus Christ. Genuine belief is so much more than intellectual belief. Just knowing about something. You have to know it and love it and enjoy it and revel in it. It's not just believing that God exists. The demons believe in shudder. And I hope that you see the distinction between these levels of belief. Believing in God and believing in Jesus are inseparable imperatives from God. You must believe in both God and Jesus because they are one, as Jesus said. When you genuinely believe in Jesus, you also genuinely believe in God. Jesus cried out in John 12, 44, Whoever believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. God and Jesus are indivisible persons. Comfort for a troubled heart begins with faith. And included with that faith is Christ's promise of heaven. His glorious promise of heaven. This is part of what Jesus called those disciples to believe. Heaven is awesome. Heaven is awesome because God lives there. We need to stop listening to people who claim to have been to heaven and come back. We need to stop buying their books, too. And we need to start listening to God's word. Heaven is often perceived as all the best things of life, all the best things of this earth without sin, sickness, or struggle. For many, heaven is gold streets. Huge mansions, living in luxury, seeing relatives and loved ones and hanging out with friends. And sadly, for many, many people, the most desirable thing about heaven isn't God. It's something else that they want more than God. What Jesus described in verses 2 and 3 is what heaven is all about. Here is the promise and comfort of heaven. In my Father's house, Are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. First, Jesus mentioned his Father's house or the place where God lives. The Bible calls the dwelling place of God heaven. Heaven. Think of the Lord's Prayer. Think of Isaiah 63, 15, which says, Look down from heaven and see from your holy and beautiful habitation. God is in heaven and heaven is holy and heaven is beautiful. Now, you've probably heard verse 2 translated this way. In my Father's house are many mansions. Have you heard that? That's no longer a good translation. Years ago, mansion referred simply to a dwelling place. But nowadays, mansion implies a large and extravagant home for the rich, a luxurious home. That's not what Jesus was saying. The Greek word is mone, which means dwelling place, simply dwelling place. Jesus was saying that in God's house, there are many dwelling places. There are many rooms. Audio Adrenaline was partly right. It's a big, big house with lots and lots of room. See, the emphasis is not on the size or extravagant of some mansion that is somehow reserved for us, for each of us, but the emphasis is on the many rooms. Jesus was comforting his disciples, "There's enough room for you in heaven. There's enough room. There's plenty of room." There are many rooms implying that there are many people who will occupy those many rooms. Heaven is big and a lot of people will be there. And to hear that at this moment was comforting. Jesus said, if it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? So if there wasn't room for the disciples and Jesus would not prepare their way To get there, why would Jesus have told them otherwise? He's not going to lie to them. Now, there is something here that I think might change the way that you interpret these verses, the way that you understand it. My view actually changed this week by studying it deeper. In the past, I understood verses 2 and 3 to mean that Jesus would leave earth. He would return and go to his Father, and he would make preparations for us there. Right, He would create for us an amazing heaven. I'm not sure that's what he meant. I think place means the right to be in heaven, their reserved spot in heaven. When someone buys you a ticket to a concert with exclusive reserved seating, you know, the best seating at the concert, your place is your reserved seat. And the preparation is your friend purchasing the ticket for you. Jesus would purchase their place in heaven. Because of his preparations, they would have a right to take their place in heaven. So then Jesus needed to go to the cross to prepare that place. Dying on the cross as the sinless substitute, absorbing the wrath and judgment of God and paying their sin debt in full so they could enjoy God forever, was how he prepared the place. Can you see that from the passage? I didn't see that before. His preparation was not constructing streets and castles and gardens as much as enduring the suffering of the cross so that every believer including the 11 would possess privileged access to the dwelling place of God. Jesus was essentially telling them that they would uh, that he rather would do everything necessary to reserve a spot for each of them in the house of God. And then in verse 3 he assured them, I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am you may be also. Jesus needed to go. He needed to go. If they were to have a place, he needed to go. But he would come back for them and take them to be with him forever. As they trusted Christ's word, that promise would comfort them. I would imagine that the disciples were comforted for many years from these words He'll come back. He's going to be back. Will it be today? Will it be tomorrow? When is he coming? He said he would come. He said He would get us. He said He would take us to be with Him. In all the pain and struggle of your life, doesn't it comfort you that Jesus will come back for us? He'll get us and He'll take us to be with Him forever. He will not leave us or forsake us. He'll come back. He promised. And then, then we can actually see Him face to face how He actually is in all of His splendor and glory. And enjoy pure fellowship with Him forever. Please don't miss why heaven is so awesome. Heaven is awesome because it's God's house. Because God is there. In all of His glory and power and beauty, God is there. Along with His glorious Son, Jesus. Think about this. Jesus said, I will come again and will take you to myself. To myself, that where I am, you may be also. That is exactly why your heart should ache for heaven. Because Jesus is there and you want him. I want to see my grandfather, Lewis Good. Never met him. He died when my mom was 10. But more than seeing grandpa, I want to see Jesus face to face. I want to stand breathless in the presence of of an almighty god i want to glory in the magnificence of god no sin no lethargy no apathy just a clear view of the glory of god now i'm not suggesting that we shouldn't desire to be reunited with our believing loved ones i'm not suggesting that that is right that is good so I say anticipate that. But what I am saying is that the greatest joy of heaven is not our loved ones. It's our loved one. The joy of heaven is the presence of God and the presence of Jesus. And I must be very, very careful here because, again, it is good to desire reunion with believing loved ones. But if your foremost desire is seeing your loved ones and not the fullness of the glory of God, then something is wrong in your heart. The disciples were troubled because they couldn't be with Jesus The disciples were troubled because he was leaving them and and they wanted to be with Jesus the most. And Jesus didn't comfort them by saying, let not your hearts be troubled. You will one day see your best friend Larry or Jimmy or Johnny. No, instead Jesus comforted them with the thought of reunion with him. Heaven is awesome because God lives there. And the longing of your heart and soul should be God, Him. Never undervalue the grandeur of heaven by equating it to the perfection of all earthly pleasures and comforts in unlimited supply. But anticipate the full grandeur of heaven, the revelation of the fullness of God's glory. Heaven is for real, you know, but not because Colton and Todd Burpo say it is but because Jesus says it is. About 68% of Americans believe in heaven, and I'd guess that most of those would assume that they're going there. But it's really quite sad because so many people are confused not only about what heaven really is, but on how to get there. There are some whacked out views, most of which stem from something we do to get there. But there are many paths to God. There are many millions of paths to God, as Oprah would say. I would say there are essentially only two competing views on this. Number one, you get to heaven because of something you do. To work your way to God. With this view, there could be innumerable ways to God because we're all just kind of working on our own to try to figure it out and someday we might get there. That's essentially what religion is. Number two, the other view, you get to heaven by grace through trusting in Jesus Christ alone and what he has done for you. And that says there's only one way. And that way is a person. There are, uh, these two are two radically different views. And aren't we glad that Jesus has already settled this? We don't have to wonder what way it is. He's made it perfectly clear. Clear. American Christianity has grossly misunderstood Jesus, taking him as a tolerant, accepting, inclusive, and broad-minded guru hippie who exists to make us feel good and to give us stuff, like some heavenly genie. All right? And I'd love to write a book titled, Jesus Isn't Nice. I'd love to write that book with a subtitle, but he is awesome. And in the book, I would explore Christ's less celebrated attributes, like wrath. And justice and judgment along with all the divisive things that Jesus said when he was here. We need to stop refashioning Jesus after what we want him to be and start believing him as he truly is. Jesus was not pluralistic. Jesus would not have fit in in America. Our culture would vilify the real Jesus as an intolerant, delusional, and dangerous religious extremist. The Jesus that our culture is comfortable with, the Jesus you see in little bobblehead dolls and in paintings, is not the real Jesus. The real Jesus, God's Son, actually believes that He is the only way to heaven and that anyone who ventures a different path to God will die in their sin and suffer God's condemnation forever. Hear it loud and clear, Jesus Christ is the only way to God. There are so many ways that people try to muddy the waters on this but the most intellectually honest and consistent thing to do is to read the bible fairly just be fair about what it says and allow jesus to speak for himself jesus said to the 11 and you know the way to where i am going you know the way Now, that was an interesting thing to say, considering that the disciples were confused about what he was talking about. Listen to how Thomas responded in verse 5. Lord, we, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Thomas was logical. If they didn't understand exactly where he was going, how could they understand then how to get there? Well, if you look back at John 13, 36, Peter asked Jesus, Lord, where are you going? And Jesus it as it as it goes never really answered his question but he would now if i take christina uh, out on the town to a surprise dinner date and i don't tell her where we're going for dinner i want it to be a surprise and uh what do you think she would ask me if she's going to drive there drive us there she's in the driver's seat How how do i go what way do you want me to go I want me to go north? I want me to go south? Which way? Um, now, why does she ask that question? Doesn't she know how to get there? Well, of course she doesn't. If she doesn't know where we're going for dinner, she won't know how to get there. The moment I say the cat's meow, now she knows how to go. Now she's got the way. Up until this moment, Jesus was fairly obscure about his return to the Father. In verse 6, Jesus began to explain things in much more obvious terms. Jesus answered, Thomas, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Wow, that's intolerant. That's exclusive. That keeps some people out. When Jesus said, you know the way to where I am going, he was referring only to himself. The way wasn't some dusty road in Jerusalem. It it wasn't a set of rules. It, It wasn't some weird religious ceremony that you have to go through and do. The way was a person, the son of God. Can you see it all coming together? And it's going to get even more clear as we proceed in the coming weeks. Jesus is the only way to God. And the disciples knew the way to God because they knew Jesus. If they trusted Him, He would take them to God. At this point, if anybody says that there are multiple ways to get to heaven, to get to God, then they are directly at odds with Jesus Christ, God's Son. Jesus is utterly intolerant and disdainful of absolutely every other proposed way. Because every other proposed way is a wide highway that leads to destruction. If Jesus was simply a moral man or great teacher, then his statement in verse 6 is the most self-deceived, egotistical, and absurd statement that anyone has ever made. But if he is God's son, sent into the world to save sinners, if he is God's anointed and appointed Messiah, his Christ, then his statement is pure grace and love and beautiful hope and anticipation. Though his statement is exclusive, no one comes to the Father except through me. His statement is also wonderfully honest. Jesus is the only way to God. There is no hope outside of Jesus Christ. No confidence outside of Jesus Christ. Either you trust Jesus with all of your heart, all of your life, all of who you are, and trust that he'll take you to God, or you perish. Jesus made it that simple for us. When John and Peter were arrested and they were standing before the Jewish Sanhedrin, Peter told them, there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Why would Peter be so bigoted? Why would Peter be so intolerant of any other religious view? Because he heard Jesus say in the last moments of his life at a very special supper together with him, I am the way. No one comes to the Father except through me. This is why trusting in your own good works is insane. If you trust in your own good works to get to heaven, it's antithetical to everything that Jesus taught. It's a spit in his face. If you think your good works and your moral achievements contribute to your salvation in any way, 0.00003% 0.00003% any way. You are really saying that Jesus is not the only way. That there is another way and you are that way. You're really saying, no, Jesus, you're a liar. You're a liar. You are not the only way. See, I don't need your righteousness. I can do this on my own. I don't need your help. I got this. It's the most prideful thing you can say. That way of thinking is so widespread in our culture, and in fact, it's widespread in the church. But no matter how you slice it, it contradicts Jesus. Jesus also said he was the truth. Jesus is absolute truth. In a culture that wipes away absolute truth, he said there is no absolute truth. Oh, yes, there is, and his name is Jesus. He is truth. Everything he says is truth. Everything he does is truth. uh, John said, rather, that he was full of grace and truth, and that grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. 1 John 5, 20 says, We are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Revelation 19 is a, a terrifying view and picture of Jesus riding a white horse and in verse 11 says the one sitting on it is called faithful and true Jesus also said he was Zoe the life Jesus is the fullness of life Jesus is eternal life Jesus is vitality Jesus said back in John 11:25 I am the resurrection and the life In John 17:3 Jesus prayed as the 11 listened and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. 1 John five eleven and 12 is awesome. Listen to this. And this is the testimony, that God gave us eternal life. And this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. If you have the Son, you have life. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. Aren't we glad when it's just crystal clear? Only the people who want to live run to Christ. The only way to get to God is through Jesus or by way of Jesus. This was good news for the 11 disciples because they knew Jesus. They knew the way. They trusted Jesus. They didn't trust in themselves. They knew they they wouldn't measure up. They trusted Jesus. And because of their faith in Him, they would get to the Father. What it comes down to is this, my friends. Know Jesus. It's the only way to truly know God. Know Jesus. It's the only way to truly know God. Jesus said to the eleven, If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on you do know Him and have seen Him. They were all introduced to God when they began to know Jesus Christ, God's son. Think about that. How about this for a bumper sticker? Know Jesus, know God. Know Jesus, know God. Hopefully you got that. Think about it later. Jesus is our connection with God. The father. Many people think that they know God despite not knowing Jesus, his son. You cannot know God without knowing Jesus. Think about how verse 7 would have hit the disciples. From now on, you do know God and have seen God. Had they seen God? They didn't know they saw God. We're going to get to that next week. Some further questioning about that. They, They didn't think they saw God. Jesus had said before, and whoever sees me sees him who sent me. The disciples had seen God because they saw Jesus. Let me ask you a really honest question. I want you to be honest with yourself. Don't call out, that's awkward. Just answer in your own heart. Do you want to see God? Do you want to see God? Does he intrigue you? Do you think he might be glorious? Do you think he might be better than the things that we experience on this earth? You see, I have a hunch that he is more glorious than anything here because in all the pleasures that I've experienced, and without Jesus, I am a pure hedonist. Just be honest about that. Get that on the table. I've never had something that satisfied me. I mean, I've had some amazing steaks, my friends. Amazing steaks. I love steaks. A little sip of red wine with the steak. And why is it that I always want another steak? Well, the last one must not have been good enough. You see, these pleasures, do you honestly think this is it? Don't you think there's something? Do you want to see God? Do you want to finally see something perfect that will blow you away and, and you'll, be, you'll be speechless? I have never been speechless in my life. <laughs> I, I, I might have been. I don't think. I can't remember. I have always, sometimes I think I've lied and said I've got nothing to say. No, I, have all, I always have something to say. I've never seen something that took my breath away. Honestly, folks, I have problems saying, like, like take your breath away or something. Because I've never really been... I did one time land on my back on the concrete, falling like down. That took my breath away. I was Couldn't get it. But I've never seen anything that took my breath away. Mm-mm. Do you want to see God? Make sure you know Jesus. You see the Father in Him. And when you trust Him, Jesus will take you to see God. Stay very close to Jesus. And in time, He will take you to see God so you can observe His infinite glory forever. Of all weeks, my family chose to go to Baltimore this past week. Um, And on Wednesday afternoon, we headed down to Baltimore for some family fun. And on Thursday, we hit the aquarium at Inner Harbor. It was a blast. We had a ton of fun. Now, think, think about this for a moment. What if we said to the kids, We can do this Baltimore trip if you guys get us down there? We're not going to help you at all. In fact, you can't get help from anybody else. You have to take us down there. You need to do it on your own. We'd be horrible parents if we let them try. Honestly, so uh, I don't even think they would try. I think we just wouldn't go. We'd basically be like, well, that that kills Baltimore. Um, but imagine for a second how bad things would turn out if they actually tried, right? So Jeremiah jumps behind the wheel. Peter hits the floor and starts running the pedals, right? Maria in the, in the, the front seat, you know, beside them with the mat, you know, I... I don't even know if Maria knows how to read a map. I'm not sure. And Christina and I are in the back and our our eyes are closed and we're holding on to each other and we're praying, you know, that we could all be spared. They're children. They can't get us to Baltimore. That's ridiculous. And it's hard to even comprehend how they would even try to get us to Baltimore. So if we relied on them, we're not going to see those, those awesome dolphins and those Poison dark frogs, they're amazing. Uh, you know, I, I didn't. I heard they can't harm humans, so and they don't spit things. But. Can we be honest for a bit? We're like the kids. We are in utter need of someone to take us to see amazing things. Kids are a picture of our tremendous desperation for Jesus to take us to God. We will never see the limitless wonders of God unless Jesus takes us to see him. And he will if we believe in God and believe in Jesus. Jesus prepared the way for us by living, by dying, by living again for us. Trust him and you will see God. Let's pray. Oh, Father, your Christ is precious. We thank you for your Son who can take us to God. Man, we hear all these weird religious views of what people have to do to get to God. And we can say, I don't have to do that. I just trust the one who's done everything for me. And then I walk in righteousness and holiness because I love Him. So God, help us to look directly to Jesus And to long for him to take us to see God. He's the only one who can. And so thank you for your amazing son. Thank you for revealing amazing things to us in your gospel, in your word. But someday you will reveal yourself in the fullness of your glory. And we will not die. But we will revel in your glory cherishing you, treasuring you, enjoying you forever. Thank you for Jesus. In his name we pray.